Go ahead and get your Bibles, your notebooks, your pens. Um, those will help us uh, discover God's text and understand it better today. And so we're going to be in, as you should know by now, Philippians chapter 3. I mean, verses 15 through 21 today. So I'll give you a little head start. Get your things going there. Um, regardless of if you like it or not, um, next week, something very important happens. And this is either very good news or very bad news. And that is we go back to school. Next week, you can't avoid it. Can't get out of it. It's happening. Our city will change drastically tomorrow at about 8 a.m. next Wednesday. And so for some of you, this is very good news, right? You love school. You love to study, learn, or maybe you're a parent and you're very excited to send your kid off to school. For some of us in this room, it's not great news. Uh, we really enjoyed our summer, sleeping in, or uh, just the freedom that came with that. But that's the reality uh, next week. And so I want you to think about your schooling experience, where you've been in the past. And you guys know what the word syllabus means? You know what that word is? Maybe some weird memories just flooded back into your head the moment I said that word. But this, for many of you, I don't know what grade syllabuses are a thing. Maybe it's always a thing. I don't know. I'm not a teacher. But there's a moment, right? The first day of school. Nobody dreads the first day of school, right? The first day of school is kind of fun, exciting. You get to see your friends, all those things. And typically, your teacher just hands you the syllabus. That's not that bad of a day. It's kind of fun. But the syllabus, if you're a good teacher, right, I think, a good teacher has a well-thought-out syllabus. And a syllabus does primarily th three things. It teaches the students what they need to know. So as we lay out for you this, this semester, here's the things you're going to need to learn to do well in the class. So things you need to know, it will also share things you need to do, right? So it'll lay out for you dates, uh, assignments, projects, all those types of things. A, a teacher's well thought advanced. This is what it's going to look like. If you want to get an A in my class, these are the things you're going to need to do. And also, I think a good teacher um, lays out in the syllabus why this class is important. So there'll be a statement there to help them see this is so much bigger than history. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because this teaches us how to be good citizens, or I'm not a history teacher. You can get there with the illustration. A syllabus is very helpful. It lays all those things out for you. It makes it practical. Here's what we need to know. Here's what we need to do. And here's why it is important. I have this weird memory in my head I have to share with you. Uh, I don't know why this is stuck in my head. I'm curious if my wife remembers this. I don't know. But we were in a class in Bible college. And I remember I attended the first day of the class. I think it was Psalms. This might explain something in just a second. But it was Psalms class. And we sat there and the teacher handed us the syllabus. And it was terrifying. He gave us the list of all the things we've got to memorize, how many Psalms we had to read every day, all the exams, the papers. The, it was a ton of stuff. And I remember he stood up at the beginning of the class and he said, just to make sure, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Like I expect a lot. If you're late, you lose a letter grade. If you miss an assignment, you lose a letter grade. If you don't do well on a, on a quiz, you lose a letter grade. And he's just like, you know, scaring me so badly. And I'm like, man, there's not a chance I get out of this class with better than a D. Like it's going to be a C or D if I'm lucky. Just terrified me. But now I reflect on it. Like 
I am grateful he was clear, right? Uh, syllabuses are helpful because they're at least clear. And I remember right after that class, I went up to the registrar's office and dropped that class. I'm like, this is not happening. That's so much stress, which might explain why I don't know Psalms better than I do. But anyways, God is the revealer of truth. And so, I, but again, good teachers are clear, right? Here's the expectations. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. Um, here's why it is important. As we read through Philippians chapter three, as I was reading it and studying, preparing for today, I'm like, this is what Paul is doing for us. At about verse 15, he gets very practical and he lays out for us what this would look like in the believer. I want to throw just an outline that I came up with as I was preparing this, because I think this is exactly what Paul does. In verses 1 through 14 of Philippians chapter 3, it's very personal, He's talking a lot about himself and what God has done in his own life. And then verse 15, it becomes very practical. Let me walk you through what I just see in Philippians chapter three. In Philippians chapter three, verses one through six, you hear a lot about Paul. You see Paul's resume, what he was like, what he experienced, what he did. And then in verses 7 through 12, you hear a lot about Paul's theology or what the gospel is, how we, uh, how we are gained access to the righteousness that is required uh, to be acceptable by God. And he lays out for his, us his theology, what he believes about the gospel. And then in verses 12 through 14, Paul tells us about his, his lifestyle or his work ethic. He, he tried harder than anyone. He, he, was, he was striving to bring God glory. It's, all, it's a lot about Paul in verses 1 through 14. And then in verse 15, you see the word, therefore. And it's this transitional word that helps us see, okay, it's time to talk to you. It's time to talk to the church. And so I'm just summarizing verses 15 through 21 as Paul's plea. As he kind of moves you through himself, his journey, his theology, his work ethic. Now it's like, okay, believers. Okay, church. This is what I'm hoping for you. I hope this is true. He lays out for us the syllabus, if you will, of the Christian life. Again, what we're not describing is how to earn salvation. That's not on Paul's mind at all. But rather, as Christians, what does it look like to follow Christ Jesus? We go from personal to practical. So today, Paul's going to share with us three main things as his plea to the church. He's going to give us a challenge. Here's the syllabus for us. He's going to give us a challenge a warning and a reminder. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. I'm going to caution you not to do. And then I want to remind you what's most important, why this is interesting. So hopefully you're in our text by now, Philippians chapter three. I want to just read out loud for us God's word, verses 15 through 21. And ask the Holy Spirit to do the work in our hearts, in our lives. It reads this way, Philippians 3, 15. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. 
For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. May the Lord uh, be pleased by the reading of his word. I just want to walk us through our text today and just see these three practical elements that Paul lays out for us of what the Christian life looks like, his plea to this church. So let's start in verse 15 and look at verse 17 for just a moment where we see Paul's challenge. Again, he starts off the paragraph by saying, therefore, reminding us that it's now his turn to talk to us. And I'm going to ask you to underline or to highlight or to circle a few words just because I want them to pop off the page to you to help you see them a little bit uh, more clearly. So the first word I want you to underline are, are two words to underline are the words think and reveal. We underline those or circle those or highlight those. He's, he's teaching us that all, the, that all the theology that Paul discussed in verses 7 through 12, he tells us to think the same way if you're mature. That's kind of the adjective he uses here. For those that are mature, you should think the same way or to agree with Paul think this way and it will re be revealed to you. Or to put it in just a simple phrase, follow Paul's theology. So Paul, again, a follower of Jesus Christ, is, has devoted his life to knowing and, and living for Jesus, has been revealed through the Holy Spirit what the gospel is, what is true about our salvation. He now declares to this church and as an example to the church, he asks them to follow the same theology, to, to understand what is true of the gospel that he just revealed. And so my question to you, even though we've already studied these verses, but my question to you is to consider before we move on is do you agree with Paul? Do you follow Paul's theology? And I think the clearest, most succinct um, gospel declaration in these verses is verse nine. So let me read it to you one more time and just ask you to consider, do you agree with Paul? Do you agree with the doctrine that he shared in verse nine? It says this, he's talking about himself. I, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. That's Paul's understanding of the gospel. I can't earn it. There's nothing I can do. I can obey the law to the best of my ability and it doesn't merit righteousness. But righteousness comes through faith in Christ alone. He then looks to the church and says, agree with me. Think the same way. 
This is the beauty of the gospel. There's nothing you can do. It must be granted to you. It must be declared upon you that you have a righteousness because of what Christ has done, not from what you have done. Follow my theology. Follow Paul's theology. Church, spiritual maturity, this is the one he's talking to the mature. Spiritual maturity involves a deep understanding of God's grace of the gift that he's lavished upon us. That's who he calls the mature, who understand it's all of grace and not of themselves. There's nothing they bring to the table to earn salvation, to merit it. It's a gift of God. Those are the mature. Think the same way. And he says that if you think differently, this is what God does in your heart and in your life. He will reveal this to you. This is what God does for us. He's our great teacher in our life. Paul reminds us that Christianity is a system of beliefs, but no one becomes a Christian with perfect theology. Theology is progressively learned. One of the greatest parts of my job is membership class. I love it so much. And one of the um, mandatory parts of membership class is to share your testimony. When did you come to faith? And I absolutely love it. It's so fun to hear my brothers and sisters in Christ share that moment that Christ saved them. He forgave them. And it's so interesting just across the board to hear these stories. Because think about your own moment when you came to faith. Did you have your theology all nicely packed and in order? You had your doctrines of grace lined up and defined? No. It was a moment where it, in kind of your own mess, God saved you. And he showed you that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and salvation. And so many of you walked an altar, or prayed with a parent, or there was just a moment where you're just like, God, I need you. And he's like, I know. And he radically saved you. And the moment he saved you, he reveals this progressive revelation of who God is and what he's done on your behalf. And he continues to teach you throughout your life. Church, the things we have explored the last few weeks, as Todd's unpacked Philippians for us, they've been profound. They've been difficult. They're beautiful truths of the gospel. And if what you have heard the last few weeks have been difficult to agree with, that is okay and good. Because it's God's work in you of revealing the depths of grace to your life. I hope as the last few weeks, if we've continued to look at this, you've just been amazed by God's grace and disappointed with your own effort. That's what Paul refers to as spiritual maturity. So keep leaning in and let God continue to reveal to you deeper truths about the gospel than you currently know. I want to give you another word to circle or underline, and that's in verse 16 as well. It says it's the word live. Underline the word live. Paul doesn't only tell us to think. He also tells us to live. Paul's plea to this church is to both think and to live accordingly. You see, Christianity is both a theology and a practice. It's a system of beliefs and a way of living. 
It's both. Christians aren't saved by knowing or by doing, but we are known by both. What we believe and what we, are, what we do. We are saved wholly by grace through faith. And it's that moment that both parts of this Christianity come into play. What we know and what we do. So he tells us to think. Paul's the example here. Think like Paul and follow Paul's lifestyle. And then he says in verse 17, here's um, one more word or two more words to underline or highlight. The word imitate and the word example. This idea of following closely. He gives us these two words, imitate and example. And I want you just to know that I'm so grateful that Paul's challenge to the church is more tangible than just a hollow be better. Have you ever had a coach like that who's just disappointed in your effort and the only thing he can get out of his mouth is, I just wish you were better. Couldn't you just be more talented? Like it's not Paul's challenge to the church. For sure, he might've been disappointed with those in his congregation, but his challenge to them is to look to the examples of others, to follow closely or to imitate. Instead, he uses the, he challenges them to follow closely. He's gonna set up in front of them examples to follow, models that they can imitate their life after. You see, God is not an absent father who is disappointed in his kids from a distance. But instead, he is a loving, caring dad who knows that models work better than mandates. And this is why Paul encourages us to imitate. And he points us to those we can imitate, himself and others in his church. He says this, pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. He says, follow good examples. And there's lots of them. Paul points to himself, he points to others in the church and says, there's lots in this congregation, this church, follow their example. They're forerunners for you. Live like them. And church is the discipleship pastor. I have to take a moment to promote small groups. This is the importance of community in small groups. This is why every single one of you needs a small group. We need to live life with people so that we can see how they live. And we can model after them. I want you to know that doesn't happen well on Sunday morning. We all look great. You all look beautiful, but I don't know your character. That happens really well in my house. That happens really well in your house. Small groups are this opportunity for us to live life together and to model, to see models and to follow their lifestyle. I tell our small group leaders, we have small group leader training this week and next week. And the first thing I will say to our small group leaders is that first and foremost, your models. We set you up as examples to our church of those that they can live like. That's a high calling. It's a big challenge, but we need those. And this is how the church has been established. To keep our school educational metaphor going for a moment, if this, right now, if Sunday mornings are the lecture hall, then small groups are the lab where we apply what we've learned. 
It's, it's where accountability happens. It's where we challenge one another, where we question, where we ask questions. It ha- works way better in that environment than it does in the lecture hall. We need both. You need a small group. I need a small group. It's where God uses people to be examples, models, and to challenge us. Small groups, small group sign up opens August 27th. I'd really encourage every single person who calls First Family Church home to be in a small group. God uses it for our good. So that's the first part of his sermon, his, his letter. He gives them a challenge. The second part of his letter, he gives them a warning. Now let's look at verses 18 and 19. He tells us to, to follow closely And now in verses 18, 19, he tells us to know the enemy. I think this is a really fascinating part of Philippians. Paul points us first to good examples, and then he warns us of dangerous examples. That's what he does in 18 and 19. Friends, brothers and sisters, be careful who you follow. Who you follow is who you will become. This is so important. And I think, I think we struggled to be self-aware of that reality. We're, very, we're great observers. We have so many tools and, and information at our fingertips that allow us to observe or to follow or to mimic. And I think we've got to be so cautious of who we follow because it's who we will become like. So question for you to consider is, whose life are you imitating? And be honest enough to answer that question fairly, even if it's positively or negatively. Maybe this is a good question to wrestle with. Who currently is having the most significant impact in your life? Put a name to it. Who are you spending the most time with? Who are you watching on social media? Whose YouTube channel are you following? Think about the influencers. That's a normal term today. Who's influencing you? And if you were to become like them, which you are, is that positive or negative? Can we just be honest enough to say, I'm influenced. And who, who is it? Is it helpful or dangerous? This is Paul's point. Be careful. Be careful who you're following because you'll become like them. His warning, he refers to these individuals as enemies of the cross. I just hope that phrase hits you in the chest like it does me. That there are these individuals that you could be following, that I could be following, that are enemies of the cross. And allow that weightiness to, to linger on you. So for a moment, do this mental exercise for me. What do you think of when you picture an enemy of the cross? For my doodlers, permission granted, doodle an enemy of the cross. What comes to mind? I think we hope it's very evident, right? Kind of looks like Satan on the cartoons, right? Horns, a tail, lives in fire. Like we really hope it's that evident. 
But as Paul describes the enemy of the cross, that's not who he describes. And verses 18 and 19 should scare you because he lays out for us what I'm referring to as a happy American. That's who he defines as an enemy of the cross. Let me, let me show this to you just for a second. Enemies of the cross many times won't look like enemies of the cross. Instead, they look normal. An enemy of the cross is anyone who thinks they are fine without the cross. That's an enemy of the cross. Anyone who thinks they're fine without the cross. Then he gives us his list. He says their, their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach, which means they live for their appetites. Their body wants it. They give it to them. They follow their passions. He says that their glory is in their shame, which literally means like they brag and boast about things they should never brag and boast about. The things that logically would tell you to hide, they boast about. That's this individual. The thing that they should be embarrassed about, they're not. That's the enemy of the cross. They're focused on earthly things, which means their eyes are on this world. They live for the 80 plus years they're given here. Their kingdom is what matters most. They're trying to have all the fun and collect all the toys. And that's the goal of life. That's the enemy of the cross. And many of us are following them. And we're going to become like them. I want to share with you an Old Testament reference, an illustration, because I think it's devastating and super profound. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we meet a priest named Eli. And Eli has some sons that are the priest helpers or, or workers of the temple. And from all human aspect, Eli's sons would have looked like good guys to model after, to follow. They probably looked the part. They worked in the right place. They did God's work. Like everything about them was like, man, those are upstanding young men. Man, if all of our, our young guys could look like them, man, they'd be really good. But let's hear how God describes them, even though they looked like friends of God. Let's hear how 1 Samuel chapter 2 describes Eli's sons. It says this, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Verse 17, this sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. You would have looked at Eli's sons and been like, man, they're the cream of the crop. They're great guys, but the word of God describes them as enemies of the cross. Their stomach was their God. They lived for pleasure. They, they lived for the years God gave them on earth. They were about this earth. They weren't living for him, but on the external, everything looked just great. And yet the word of God describes them as enemies of the cross. You see, Position, 
followers, appearance, are all terrible ways of picking who to follow. Church, follow character, not charisma. Be cautious of charisma. Here would be a couple good questions to ask about the influencers in your life. Who is their God? Who do they worship? Do they worship themselves? Do they worship fun? Or do they worship their king? What do they brag about? What do they boast in? What do they show off? Another question to consider. Whose kingdom are they most passionate about? Whose kingdom are they building? If it's not Christ's, it's possible they're an enemy of the cross. A few years ago, I was reading a book and there was this paragraph in the book that I read and I've never been able to forget it. I think as I read it to you, it will be beneficial and terrifying. Let me read it to you. It says this, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? You get the premise? So what would things look like if Satan took control of a city? He says this, over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, the city where Barnhouse pastored, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ was not proclaimed. You get his point? What's an enemy of the cross? Anyone who thinks they're fine without the cross. That's terrifying to me. These are the ones that Paul puts in front of you as the warning. Don't follow them. You'll become like them. Be the ones that are desperate for righteousness, who know they're the chief of sinners, who's desperate for Jesus. Those are the ones we should follow. Be like them who know they need Jesus. Church, be careful of who you follow. And then lastly, he gives us a reminder in verses 20 and 21, Paul lays out for us why this matters, why this class is so important, what matters most. And it's a reminder of who you are. Understand who you are. It's just as, just as a good teacher would remind you why the class you are taking is essential. So Paul anchors all of his teaching on the truth of who we are now. And he verbalizes it this way, citizens of heaven. You, don't forget who you are. You are a citizen of heaven. This is what matters most. Remember where you live. See, at first glance, you might not see it, but verses 20 and 19 are so, are so uh, 
instant comparisons. 19 describes the enemy, 20 describes the friend of Christ. And it's so profound that I want you to look at it deeply. Let me show you just a few that I see in the comparisons between 20 and 19. In verse 19, he tells that the enemies of the cross, that their end is destruction. In verse 20, he tells us that our end is presence with the Father as we eagerly wait his return. That's our end or our next, if you will. They're done. We're just beginning as we wait for the next step of presence with the Father, as he, or as, with Christ as he returns to get us. We eagerly await. Their life is coming to end. Ours is about to begin. He says that their God is their stomach. And in verse 20, he tells us who our God is. His Savior, our God is a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not your passions. Your God is not your passions. Your, God, your passions is God's mission. What we should be passionate about, what we should be excited about is whatever excites Jesus what he is passionate about. We know what he's passionate about, his glory, his honor, that sinners would become saints. That's what should drive us. That's the appetite that should be inside of us is that God would receive glory because he's the savior and he's the Lord. In verse 19, it says that their glory is in their shame. And in verse 20, we see that our glory is in Christ. We wait for him. What do we boast in? What do we brag about? That our king is returning. That's that what should excite us the most. This is what we should proclaim. He says that they live for now and we live for eternity because our citizenship is in heaven. Friends, are you eager to go home? I hope you are. You see, you work here, but you live there. You know how we can't wait for the weekends because you get to be home? I hope you have that feeling in your gut about eternity. Man, I'll put in my work. I'll live for God. I'll strive for him. But oh, to go home. You know, summer's vacation season. A lot of you've been traveling, but there's just something about your bed. Yeah, that hotel was nice. That resort was nice, but... Can't wait to go home. That should be the motto of Christians. Man, it's been good. It's been fun, but I'm not with Jesus yet. I sure can't be with, I can't wait to be with Jesus. That's where my citizenship is. I work here, but I live, I live there. I can't wait to go home. And then verse 21, he says, the end result. What's the end result for the enemy of the cross? They might have a good life, right? Things might go well for them, but their end is destruction. What does he tell us? What's our end or our next? He will transform you. They got their 80 years. They had fun. It's over. For those who are friends of Jesus, he will transform you. You'll be like him. You'll have perfect bodies just like his. You'll spend eternity with him. You see the differences between the enemies of the cross and the friends of God? They may look identical, but there's so many vast differences. 
sometime this week, meditate just on verses 19 and 20 and allow the differences between them to challenge you to examine your life. My hope is that, that, that not any of you doubt your salvation, but rather that you give yourself time to process how am I living? Am I living for Jesus like I ought to be? Allow today's text to be a pause in your spiritual journey and ask the question, am I headed in the right direction? I think that's Paul's point. And if not, what needs to change? I want to boil it down today to a take-home truth and give you a statement, a sentence to wrestle with. But right after I read it to you, I need to give you a caution. So let me read it to you and then give you a caveat. Here's our take-home truth today. Genuine, joyful Christians know their king, live for his kingdom, and eagerly wait his return. I do believe that. That is, a, that is a great summary, I think, of the text. But before we get too far into that, my warning to you is to not make that a to-do list. Don't make that a checklist. Our take-home truth does not tell you how to become a Christian. Are we clear on that? That's been the whole first part of Philippians 3. This is not how you merit anything. Rather, it's a description of. This is who we are. So just take a pause. Allow that to kind of settle on you as a challenge, not as a to-do. We don't merit salvation, but rather we live for his kingdom. So just a couple questions for you. Do you know your king? Do you study theology? Do you read good books? Do you want to understand the gospel better? How about this? Do you live for his kingdom? Are you a disciple who makes disciples? Are you investing your time, energy, and resources in making sure your life is fun or in pointing others to the king? We're not anti-fun here. What we are is fun's a terrible king. Fun's a terrible God. God's a great God. Does that make sense? Invest in that. It matters more. And then lastly, are you eagerly awaiting his return? Christ's return is what ought to excite us. See, church, just as a reminder, you and I are not saved by what we do, but being saved changes us drastically. It changes our citizenship. It changes our passions. It changes what we boast about, and it changes what we wait for. If that's you, it's, again, evidences of salvation, Allow that to settle on you for just a moment. I want to just remind you again of the good news of Jesus as we conclude. And I want to just take that phrase one more time. Remember he said in verse 19, beware, understand, there's people out there that are enemies of the cross. I want to just remind you of the brilliant news of the gospel real quick. Because at one time, Romans chapter 5 reminds us, that we all were at one time enemies of the cross. Friends, the greatest news in the world is that you are no longer what you once were. You and I were all enemies of the cross. Our God was our stomach. 
We lived for this earth. We boasted in what we should have hidden. That's who we were. But when the grace of God appeared, when he drastically saved us, he changed us. And we are no longer what we once were. Here's Romans 5. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, me and you. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies... So before we go casting stones at enemies of the cross, can you please remember that you and I at one time were those enemies? And it's only because of God's grace and his mercy we're now children of God. Christ died for us while we were his enemies. It's the only reason we worship him today. And now reconciled to God through the death of his son.